0: Peggy and Patty McDaniel were 17-year-old sisters from New Jersey staying with their father in Live Oak, Florida. Unbeknownst to their parents, in mid-August of 1979, they took a trip to the Fort Lauderdale area. A month later, on September 15th, the sisters were supposed to go to a club in Pompano Beach with a man they had met. A few days later, this man was found shot dead. The girls were never seen again. I'm Ed Densel. And this is Unfound. If you watch enough detective shows or movies, whether it be a police procedural like Law & Order, or something more unique like Columbo. Or if you read enough mystery novels, you can begin to believe that solving a murder or disappearance is as simple as finding that coincidence or unique fact that nobody else can see. For example, in the movie The Silence of the Lambs, Clarice has the help of Dr. Lecter to point her in the right direction where she figures out the killer knew his first victim, a fact no one else noticed. In the film Seven, the detectives discover the murderer who kills according to the seven deadly sins has checked out certain books concerning that topic at a library, leading them to where he lives. And if you want to go way back, in Edgar Allan Poe's novel, Murders in the Rue Morgue, which could be considered the first modern detective story, Dupin surmises the crimes weren't committed by a human at all, despite everyone else claiming otherwise. In a way, at least in fiction, All the police have to do is connect the dots. All the proof is there, right in front of their faces. All they have to do is see it. But as we know, real life isn't so simple. However, in this case, the disappearances of Peggy and Patty McDaniel, if it hadn't been for a completely innocuous statement made by the murdered man to his mother the day of his death, this disappearance would have no suspects, no persons of interest, and in fact the disappearances of Peggy and Patty wouldn't be connected to this man's death at all. Yet, this case is also an example of how police can get off track if they take into account too much information without analyzing it further. And now the facts of the case. This is brought to you by my friend Megan Good's site, charlieproject.org. Although it should be noted, this case is not on there. I hope I can work with Megan to get it listed there very soon. Peggy and Patty McDaniel were 17-year-olds living with their mother in New Jersey. Their parents were divorced with a father living in Live Oak, Florida. The two were fraternal twins and very close, to the point that their mother, Joyce, believed allowing one of them to live with their father would help their individual growth and help them make more friends. However, after a $300 phone bill run up by the girls talking to each other, and also due to their mother having surgery, Both daughters ended up going to live with their father in Florida in February 1979. Joyce was wary of this due to an accident on a prior trip in which Patty was hit in the eye with a ricocheted bullet shot by a friend of hers. The girls stayed with their father and his new wife through the summer. Peggy and Patty did not care for their stepmother and mentioned this many times. During this time, they befriended Marvin Warren in Live Oak, a boy two years older, who had known the girl's older sister when she'd lived with their father a few years before. At some point, and the exact date is not known, but it is presumed to be mid-August 1979, the girls left with Marvin and another man, Ed Gross, and took a trip to Pompano Beach, a city 365 miles south of Live Oak. The girls did this without letting anyone, including their parents and friends, know that they were leaving. In Pompano Beach, Ed Gross got an apartment and they all lived there. The girls got jobs working at a shoe store and a fast food restaurant. Yet, a few weeks into their time there, Peggy and Patty sent a letter to their mother saying they wanted to come back to New Jersey. The girls gave no explanation as to why they were far from home, how they got there, and what they were doing. There was also no mention of Ed Gross or Marvin Warren or how their mother could reach her daughters by phone. Their mother, stunned that her daughters weren't in Live Oak, wrote right back, and told them to go immediately to the airport and to call her collect from a payphone. However, there is no proof the girls ever received this letter. Later, in a seemingly unrelated incident, Nelson Johnson, a resident of Pompano Beach, was found in the trunk of his car, shot to death, and over $1,000 was discovered to be missing from a briefcase he carried. Police, during their investigation of the murder, discovered that Nelson had told his mother that he was going to meet quote-unquote the white girls the night of September 15, 1979. The police believe Nelson meant Peggy and Patty because as kids, Nelson had known Ed Gross, and the girls were with Gross before Nelson was murdered. Since the night of Nelson's murder, Peggy and Patty McDaniel have never been seen again despite various rumors, and Nelson's murder is still unsolved. The interview for this episode is with Peggy and Patty's mother, Joyce Rivetuzzo. Unfound news. I conducted an interview with Detective Kenneth Maines from the American Investigative Society of Cold Cases. I frankly didn't even know an organization like his existed. I'm certainly happy to know that now. My talk with him will play on an upcoming episode. In the meantime, please check out the group's website, AISOCC.org. I'm hoping some of the families we've had on Unfound can petition their respective police departments to send their loved one's case files to Ken's group. I'm also very close to picking a new logo for Unfound. Yes, we're still working on it. I've been coordinating with a couple different listeners who have graciously put in hours coming up with original ideas. I can't thank them enough. I think what I'm going to do is pick one for the standard no-nonsense logo, then pick another one that is a little more stylized for special occasions. That's my idea right at this second, anyway. And finally, and I'll be mentioning this until the first get-together happens, May 9th, 6 p.m. at the Madeira Beach Library, the first meetup for amateur sleuths wanting to solve disappearances in Pinellas County, Florida. If you live close to here, I would love for you to attend. Where you can find Unfound? On Twitter, at Unfound Podcast. On Instagram, also at Unfound Podcast. You can email the program, unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. On Facebook, the Unfound Podcast discussion group. Numbers have shot up recently. Now we're easily over 200 people. That's pretty good for a private group. I want to do a regular Facebook page, but at this point, I'm not sure I have the time to manage the discussion where the forum is a little more open. You can subscribe to Unfound at Podomatic and iTunes, and if you could, please give Unfound a great review. And finally, please mention Unfound at all the regular places like Websleuths, Reddit, Podcasts we listen to, and any other true crime forums. A couple notes before the interview. This is a fairly unknown case. I didn't even know about it until about a month ago when Mary Lyle, yes, mother of Suzanne Lyle, called me and told me that I needed to talk to Joyce, and I'm so glad that Mary did that. Uh, It's been a joy getting to know Joyce. I really like her. But it's a fairly unknown case, and it's fairly convoluted. So I ask you to pay special attention maybe to this interview. In addition, if any of you did any pre-studying, knowing that we were going to be covering this case, you might have gone to some place like Reddit where there is a thread regarding this case. I can tell you the most of the information in that thread is incorrect. And in fact, we're going to talk about that during the interview. So even things you think you might know about this case, having done some studying of it before listening to this program, uh, probably a lot of what you read is wrong. Joyce and I tried to correct the record during our interview. I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound the mother of Peggy and Patty McDaniel, Joyce Rivetuzo. Joyce, welcome to Unfound.
1: Thank you so much, Ed.
0: Joyce, tell the listeners a, a little bit about their your daughters. Uh, they were twins, weren't they?
1: Yes. They were fraternal twins, but they looked amazingly alike, and uh, they caused a big uproar when they were younger because they did look alike, and people couldn't tell them apart. Of course, you know the mom can always tell them apart, and uh, they grew up very sheltered. They were not uh, children that were worldwide. Um, they did have a little problem. They, they had a difficult birth and because of that, I think we probably sheltered them more because we felt that, uh, they needed a little extra attention, but they were not developmentally handicapped. They, they were slow learners when they were young, but they had many Uh, attributes that they followed that made them wonderful children
0: what did they like to do the bosom you you've told me that they were almost inseparable but what did they like to do together They, they were
1: inseparable i mean they were like two peas in a pod and they had started playing the piano because their oldest sister was taking piano lessons. And then they started picking out the tunes on their own. Um, they're, I think they were like a little musically inclined because uh, they just picked it up. And they were in all kinds of uh, groups where they were uh, baton twirlers, they were in gymnastics uh they loved gymnastics and dance, and
0: mm-hmm. I would
1: say when they were small, they loved to go to church, but when they got older, they drugged their feet.
0: uh-huh
1: They were just uh they were just beautiful, happy girls.
0: And so they got along. They were not, uh, you have other children, but those two, they never fought. I mean, come. sometimes, you know, sisters can be, you know, a little petty and catty and things as they go into their teenage years. You're telling us your daughters were not like that. Not them two. No.
1: Not those two. Those two, oh, my gosh. If I could go back and just think about, we used to take a lot of car trips and, uh, I took them on vacation uh every year, never left them anywhere, and they were into togetherness. I mean, they had to clap their hands together and and sing and it huh. was they were not children that fought. You know how uh, your brothers and sisters will fight? Yeah. Nope. Those uh, two didn't, they were just it was like they were in a cocoon together. They just, they, they, they just, mm. they were just inseparable.
0: Yeah. I, I have twins run in my biological family. Were you surprised when you find out found out that you were going to have twins? Was is, does that run in your family or their father's family?
1: Yes, yes, it, they do. They run on my. uh their father, their biological father's side, they run in his family like every other generation. So it was our generation, I guess, to have them.
0: Speaking of their father, what kind of relationship, and we're going to get much deeper into this as the interview goes on, but um, what kind of relationship did they have uh, with their father? And you two ended up, uh, of course, getting divorced. But what, what relationship did they have?
1: Well, and- you know, I hate to say this, really, because it, it disappoints me so bad, and it's causing me a lot of tears in my lifetime. My husband was a truck driver, and a lot of the time, he was not home. In all of our marriage, my children and I basically lived alone, except for whenever his truck rolled in, and... It got to where he very seldom rolled in. He stayed on the road because he was with other women. And I know I forgave him many times because I grew up in a family of English and Scots that you don't divorce. You know what I'm saying back then? The woman waited on the man and uh, did all the housework all the caring for the children, and that's the way he was. He never, ever had anything to do with the reason of our children, except for the fact that when we did divorce, I didn't want him not to see his children, so I made it a point to make sure that him and his parents uh, saw the children. And when... Uh, The children and I moved to uh, New Jersey in the late 70s, or in 1975. Uh, I left them with the three oldest children. I took the two youngest ones, and I left the twins and their older sister with the father until I could get a place to live and come back and get them
0: you were living in florida but you moved to new jersey he stayed in florida and then the girls the girls though ended up living with you though they eventually did come and live with oh, you yeah, Peggy they Petty. Were,
1: oh yes okay i, I uh, didn't waste any time coming back to get my children the only thing is when i came back to get them a few weeks later is when i found out that the patty one of the twins had had an accident where a stray bullet off of a street hit her in the eye and blinded her, right? In the in the left eye. So mm. that that right there, which I knew nothing about, that tells you right there what kind of a father they had.
0: So that happened and he didn't call you to say, you know what, uh, our daughter just had an accident. Um
1: you, know,
0: you you just, when you went to get them is when you found out that. Yes. That is something. Uh, what were the circumstances, if you can tell the listeners very quickly, what were the circumstances of her getting hit in the eye in the first place?
1: On a Friday night is when their father decided that they could go to the movies by themselves. And in that, which it, it was just a small town, but I don't care what town it is. There's always trouble in any town. You this know is Live Oak.
0: This is Live Oak, Florida.
1: And that's the night she got her eye hit. It was the night I left, or the day I left to go to New Jersey? He let them go off that same night, and that's when her eye got hurt. Uh, some some kid from the town had a gun. I understand it was a rifle, and it discharged, hit the street or a building, the police said, and it ricocheted and hit. just happened to hit her right in uh. the left eye. And I knew nothing about it. I mean, he would not let my children use his telephone. They were never allowed to call me from his house. Mm. When they called me, it was when they could sneak off to uh, one of their school buddies, I guess, down there or whatever, and call me collect.
0: Did your daughters That's know this? I didn't know did,
1: anything about it.
0: Did your daughters know uh this person, this kid who had the gun. Or is this stuff just a freak accident? The
1: person, yeah. Yeah. He was he was like uh, they knew him from from school down there. He was just uh-huh. a kid. Now they were fourteen at the time.
0: Okay, so this was a few years before they disappeared. Was,
1: this kid was like uh fifteen, sixteen years old and uh you know, I never heard what happened with that case. Uh, hmm. I don't know if they just deemed it an accident or whether they charged the young man with a firearm, discharge of a firearm. I never heard.
0: Did your daughter have to wear a patch? I mean, what was the status of her eye after it got hit?
1: Oh, she she had, she they kept her eye, but she had absolutely no sight. Hmm. but the eyeball itself was still there.
0: Uh now let's let's move up to 1979 and what happened then? Uh you had told me that you we had talked about earlier that the two girls were inseparable, but you started yes. to be a little I don't know concerned about that or something like that and one of them moved to Florida while one of them Stayed with you? Is that how that worked out? I felt that they
1: were just inseparable. They were not branching out like to be two different people. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And they started causing a little trouble because they were, I mean, even when they had a a babysitting job, they had to do it together. I decided. Because Peggy said, well, I'll live with Dad. And I said, are you sure? Because I knew that the stepmother did not like me or my children. And uh, she said, yeah, I'll be all right. And uh, she said, I'll just, you know, I've got friends that I had here before, and I'll be fine. So I left them with their dad. Regrettably now, I did then. I just wish I had never left that child. But uh, what started it off, they had been living with me in New Jersey for several years. And then I let her stay, and the father let her start dating, which I had never let the girls even think about dating. Mm. I mean... When they were with me, there was never any mention of wanting to date because they knew I was not going to let them date until they were 16 years old or mature enough to date that I felt they were mature enough. And uh, I think that's what started the problem because then Peggy would call Patty, okay? Patty was with me and Peggy was in Florida. And they ran up a three hundred dollar month phone bills, calling back and forth. That's when I decided this isn't going to work. I'm going to have to get Peggy and bring her back home. Mm. And uh,
0: but instead, went, but instead, both of them ended up in Florida with their father.
1: Yeah, because I became ill. I had a problem. And needed major surgery. So I still had four of my kids in New Jersey. And I don't know exactly to this day why the father came on February the 9th of 1979 to pick up Patty at that particular time. Mm -hmm. But I uh, was out of work for a while and I said well maybe it'd be better you know if you girls were together because I can't afford your phone bills and uh, that's where the phone bill thing came in is it was between them two Mm -hmm. and every dollar that Patty could get she sent it to Peggy you know what I'm saying
0: yeah
1: Yeah. it, it was just like a there was never a real separation mentally with those children.
0: And you and you and the and the their father didn't have much communication, did you? You two didn't talk. We had for, none. None. Absolutely none. Peggy and Patty are both down there as of February of 1979. Okay. Yes. Okay. Do they and go to? Okay. Do they go to school?
1: I don't know. They told me they were in school mm-hmm. because when they left, uh, she took all of her, you know, her notebook, her uh, school clothes, things like that. And I I tell you, I assume that the man kept them in school. I assume that. Uh, at the time, I was in a bad shape, but I just assumed that he put them. You know, in school. I mean, Patty was in school when she left, so I just assumed he put her in the school. And uh, like I said, they never call me from their father's house.
0: And so so once they're both in Florida from February of 1979 until, let's say, May or June of 1979 – Did either of them, when they called you, did they ever talk to you about, you know, enrolling at at a school in Live Oak, Florida or anything? Never said anything to you? No. So your daughters are down there in Florida. They're not having a lot of contact with you. Your husband has no contact with you. He doesn't want to talk to you. You don't want to talk to him. And – Before we get into the circumstances of their disappearance, can you tell the listeners a little bit about Ed Gross and Marvin Warren, just the generalities of how your daughters might have known these two?
1: Okay. The way they might have known Marvin Warren is because he had went to high school with my oldest daughter, uh, who was sixteen when I left uh Live Oak. Okay?
0: This would have been an older and, sis this would have been an older sister of Peggy and Patty. Yes. Okay. An
1: older sister, yes. Okay. And uh I understood from her that she had seen him at school but she didn't really know him. Now that's what she told me. And Marvin Warren lived right there in the middle of that town with his parents. Now, Edwin Gross. I am not sure uh, exactly what that man's real name is because the newspapers, uh, Sergeant Madge from the Lauder Hill Police Department called him Edwin. Mm
0: -hmm. He
1: was called Edward. And uh, I think they may have called him Eddie in that town because I did find uh something on an Eddie Gross that had died.
0: So uh, so Ed Gross and Marvin Ed Gross and Marvin Warren were friends were although friends. Ed, yeah were, but Ed now Gross was yeah, Ed Gross was quite a bit older than Marvin, wasn't he, though?
1: Yes, Ed Gross was like 36 at the time, according to the newspapers. Okay,
0: yeah. okay. and Marvin Warren was more like 19 around your other daughter's yeah, age. Yeah,
1: 19, yeah.
0: Okay, so during so – during and those names are going to come up here in a little bit for the listeners. Uh, what did you think – like the summer of 1979, what was your understanding as to what your daughters were doing? Were they did they have summer jobs? Were they hanging out with friends? Did you do you do you remember any of that?
1: He told. They told me Patty and Peggy when I was talking to them. They said uh, we got a job at the newspaper uh, place over here. We're like folding newspapers and all, you know, and uh, it's just a little job to keep us busy during the summer. So I said, oh, I said, well, that's good that you've got out. Now, when I think back on it, Ed, I'm wondering if somehow they didn't meet these guys maybe when they were at this newspaper place. Uh, Mm -hmm. They had to have met them someplace because they hadn't been in Florida that long, you know? Like in May, I think they met these guys like in May or June. And uh, that would have worked out with their job at the newspaper place. So uh, I didn't think anything about it. I thought, well, that's good. They got them a little summer job, you know, and they're they're okay. They never mentioned anything about anything.
0: Okay. So you had to be fairly surprised when you got a letter from them in August stating that they were in the, the Pompano Beach area. Yes. And people don't have to go to a map, the listeners. Live Oak, Florida is in the north part of Florida. It's close to like Georgia or you know Alabama, whereas yes. Pompano Beach is down in South Florida near Miami. And so your right. daughters wrote you a letter in New Jersey. From down in the Miami area, you had to be very surprised by that.
1: I was totally shocked. I mean, I was totally shocked. and it and I remember this so well. It was I don't remember the date exactly. It was like the twenty eighth or twenty ninth. I mailed them a letter on August the 30th going back down to Pompano Beach explaining to them that I would help bring them home because they wanted to come home.
0: Yeah, what did that letter say? What did that letter say? How long was it? And It was oh, a
1: couple of pages, yeah. Okay. It was a couple of pages long, and uh, it was written uh, – it was Patty's handwriting, because I know Patty's handwriting. They they didn't have the same handwriting. I mean, I knew their, the mm-hmm. difference. Mm-hmm. And uh, Patty said, Mom, we're down here in uh, South, and we are in trouble. We don't know what to do. We're in a situation we cannot get out of. Please help us to come home. And I took that as an urgent plea. Of
0: course. So
1: they didn't leave me a phone number to call or anything. So the thing that I did is I just sat right down, mailed them a letter right back, telling them to go to the airport. And when they get there to call me, Because uh, I had moved, and I had a different phone number. That's why they didn't call me. I moved from one house to another area of Jersey, and my phone number was different. Hmm. And that's why they wrote me instead of calling me, okay? So I sent them a letter right back, giving them my phone number, and that we were now living in Linden, New Jersey, and to... Uh, go to the airport immediately. Give me a call. I will have you tickets to come home.
0: In that letter, were were the names Ed Gross or Marvin Warren ever no. mentioned? No. No mention no. of that. They never. The daughters never specifically mentioned the the tr- trouble or the problems or anything that they were in.
1: No. They did, did they
0: mention not. their Did they mention their father? No. Nothing. Okay.
1: They did know it was all about mom. Uh, we love you. Uh, you know, we're sorry we're in this mess.
0: Hmm.
1: It was a, a a letter to pleading to come home is actually what it was.
0: And no explanation of what they were doing down in that None. area? None.
1: Okay. None. They didn't want to hurt me. Don't you understand? They yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. That I would have been devastated, but they also knew that I would have never been against them. But their father, oh, my gosh, they had lived with him telling them that I didn't want them and all of that, and that was bad, okay? Mm. But uh, they mentioned nothing about a man. They they just said, we, you know, we need to come home, Mom. We want to come home. Okay. Then, let me tell you what happened, though. I sent that letter. I, did, I waited, you know, to give them ample time to get the letter. Well, the fifth day of September there, a hurricane came in right at Fort Lauderdale in that area, Pompano Beach, Fort Lauderdale area. Mm. And I I'm sitting at home while I was working at the time, but I'm saying, well, you know, there's a hurricane down there, and those girls just hadn't got back to me. So what I did, I wrote them another letter, and uh, I said the same thing. Where are you girls at? Are you okay after that hurricane? And get a ride if you have to call the sheriff's department get a ride to go to the airport well i never heard anything i never got either letter back which had my return address and i never heard from the twins since that day it was there was nothing until i sent the sheriff's department after i didn't hear from my second letter I called the uh, Pompano Beach Sheriff's Department or Police Department and asked them if they would make a well check that I was concerned about my twin daughters. And I gave them the names, and that's when they said, Lauder Hill Police Department needs to talk to you.
0: So you were sending was- this just so the listeners know, you were sending them to the address that you had sent the letter to. You said that your yeah. daughters, okay, you sent them to the address that was on the letter that you sent. Okay, okay. And yeah. what did what did Lottery Hill have to tell you?
1: Well, that's when they, uh, I talked to Sergeant Edward Madge, uh, the detective there, and I was still in the north, but he said to me, we think that your girls, may have been witnesses to a homicide. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what is going on? I mean, I am totally, totally in the dark. Yeah. And that's when I took a plane and came to Florida. And uh, that's when I got the whole story about this guy being shot left in his car
0: well let's talk about Um, let's let's get into that right now who is this guy who is this guy who is nelson johnson
1: never seen him before in my life never heard the name before until sergeant Madge showed me the guy's picture Mm -hmm. and asked me if i knew him i said i've never seen that man and the thing of it is he did live in Live Oak when he was younger that I I found out hmm. but he hadn't he had not lived in Live Oak for some years because he was 25 years old had two jobs and lived in Fort Lauderdale
0: nowhere okay. near nowhere near Live Oak so there's no way yes. that your daughters could have known him before, yeah, before they no. went down there uh, to no. the Pompano Beach area. Well, what did you find out in the course of what they told you about Nelson Johnson? How, did, how, how was he connected to your daughters, and what ended up happening to him?
1: Okay, what happened was uh, Sergeant Madge said that he had talked to this uh, Johnson guy's mother in Fort Lauderdale. And the brother, and the brother had told him that Nelson said he was going to pick up the white girls, and that gave when uh, they were going uh, they were picking him up, and this was on a Friday night, which happened to be the fifteenth of um, November. September. I mean, uh, September, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. And so I'm saying, well, why would he be going to pick up the girls? Because you have to remember now, this is the guy's just been killed. Okay. Yeah. It's not like he's been dead for weeks or months. Yeah. He's just been killed. And then they bring out this name. Edward Gross or Edwin Gross. The,
0: one of the guys that on. we mentioned just 10 minutes ago in this conversation. Yes.
1: yes. He said that they were friends from Live Oak. And I said, okay. Uh, he, They showed me a picture of him. I'd never seen that man before. And I told him, I said, I don't know this man. Now... The strange part is they never mentioned Marvin Warren, but Marvin Warren was one of the guys that was with Edward Gross that went south. Supposedly, they took my twins. That's what the father, I guess, had said they ran off with. Their boyfriends, but then the stepmother changed the story and said the first part of September they came to me and said they were going to go to a store, and they never returned. Well, I knew that was a lie because I had got my letter from them in August.
0: Right. Well, we'll cor- we're going to correct the record a little bit later in in the program. Okay. We just want to stick. We just want to stick to the circumstances of when you got down there. What you're okay. saying is that your daughters were connected to the murder of Nelson Johnson through Ed Gross, who was a friend. I know this is very convoluted for the listeners, who was a friend of Marvin Warren and Marvin Warren knew Patty and Peggy's sister. So that's how the connection was made. Yeah. So when, so when uh, the mother Of Nelson Johnson, who was murdered, said he was going to pick up the white girls. That's when the police figured out that the white girls probably meant your two daughters.
1: Absolutely. When they were talking to the brother of the deceased man, Nelson Johnson, Mm -hmm. he said they were going to a place called The Plank, which is like a disco there in Fort Lauderdale. Okay? And uh, he said they were sisters, or maybe he told them they were twins. I don't know. But he said that his brother said they were going to pick up the white girls, two of you know, the two white girls. And they were going to go to the plank. And they were going with another man, though. I mean, he didn't name the other man. They just said that him and another guy was... Uh, Gonna pick them up and go to the plane, but
0: and it turns I out know. though, and it turns out that the the address that your daughter sent that letter from to you in August just happened to be an apartment being rented out by Ed Gross, wasn't it? That's also how the Ed, connection with yes. Macy.
1: Yes, Ed Gross had that apartment, and uh, the twins were staying there, according to the police with ed gross Mm -hmm. and of course the newspapers had it all mixed up they tried to say that ed that ed gross lived in fort Lauderdale. he didn't he was staying right there in uh pompano beach
0: and he would he just he was had an apartment there but just for a few months not for for he wasn't planning to stay there
1: yeah just no he was only there for a short time He left that apartment in November of 79. I know that for a fact. I talked to uh, one of the deputies by the name of Dix, D-I-X was his last name, in Live Oak, and he told me that him and Marvin Warren had come back to Live Oak in November, and the sheriff at the time, and Live Oaks had told Sergeant Madge, I can take care of these boys. You don't need to come up here, you know. Uh, I forget what Sergeant Madge, how he worded it, but he wasn't uh, needed to take care of his jurisdiction up there in Live Oak.
0: How did you find out that Nelson Johnson Uh, He was supposed to meet Ed Gross the night that he ended up dead, wasn't he?
1: You know, he never named Ed Gross as the person that he was going to take with the girls. Uh, But there's a funny thing about Nelson uh, Johnson and Ed Gross. They knew each other in Live Oak when they were younger, when this kid was in school, when he was younger. And you got to remember, he's only 25 years old now when he got killed. And uh, he was originally from Live Oak, Florida. But uh, Ed Gross had stabbed Nelson Johnson with a knife when they were in Live Oak and uh, the sheriff's department told me that they – or Ed Madge told me that they had had a problem uh, with that. So, yeah, they remained friends.
0: So what you're saying, Joyce, is at some point in the past, Nelson Johnson and Ed Gross had had some sort of disagreement. This was years, though, before Nelson uh, was murdered, right? Yes, that's true. Okay. Um. How do we know for sure or as much as we can be sure that Nelson was going to meet Ed Gross that night that that Nelson ended up dis, you know being murdered and ending up in the trunk of his own car?
1: Ed, I'm not real sure about that because the trail led the detectives there in Lauder Hill straight to ed Gross, okay, so They must have gotten that name and the connection from uh, Nelson Johnson's uh, family. Else, How would they have known to go to Pompano Beach and to Ed Gross? You know what I'm saying?
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, So somehow what you're saying is somehow the police figured this out. Somehow. Yes. Somehow they made the connection. Yes. Now, you also have a very strange story about one of your daughters showing up at the police department looking for her sister. What can you tell the listeners about this? In the weeks before they disappeared, tell the listeners a little bit about that.
1: Okay. Uh, The newspapers had it wrong. It was Peggy that went to the Lauder Hill, I mean, to uh, Pompano Beach Police Department to put in a missing person report on her sister, Patty, and she had been gone two days. And uh, then the next day, according to the Pompano Beach Sheriff's uh, Police Department, Patty showed up with... Someone, and they said it was Johnson, but I I don't believe it was Johnson. I think it was probably Ed Gross. The sheriff's department, I mean the police department there in Pompano Beach never told me who she showed up with. They just said she showed up unharmed and they dropped the missing person's case.
0: So it was it was Peggy that showed up at the police department. Yes, and she looking said for looking for Patty. And did they obviously took a report? Did the police just yes, let this let the, your daughter go? Then I mean, she's seventeen years old. It would seem that the police would do more than just take the report and then say, "Okay, well you're you're free to go now."
1: Well, of course. See, that's also got me stymied because. Uh, The newspaper report that wrote on this said that she showed up. And I've got to tell you how the newspaper put it. The copy that I've got said that Patty, well, they had the names wrong. They had them backwards. But anyway, uh, it was Peggy looking for Patty. Patty showed up, supposedly, with a guy named Johnson and that she was okay. And then Ed Gross came in the picture somewhere because Johnson said to, got into it with Edward Gross or Ed Gross saying, what are you thinking going off with the girl half your age. And uh, see, that
0: mm-hmm. that
1: made me wonder, too, because who is this Ed Gross that that he's got the girls in Pompano Beach, yet this Nelson fella, uh, Johnson, says, what are you doing with the girl... Half your age, taking Hmm. her away from her sister. See, none of that made sense to me at all.
0: And how did you find that out again? How did who told you that? How did did you find out about that? Who told you that story? That they they had had this discussion about Ed Gross being told. The newspaper newspaper said.
1: Newspaper.
0: Yeah. And do you have any idea where that conversation took place?
1: I have absolutely no idea if that ever took place. that's interesting because the sheriff's department uh the police department didn't tell me that that lady at that uh police department and just told me that Pe- Peggy had made a report to find her sister and that she showed up uh the day after she had made that report and they dropped the case i mean
0: how how long how long was this before your daughter's disappeared on september 15th was it a week before was it 2 weeks before yeah,
1: it was it, it was like it was like right before they disappeared.
0: Okay, so within a week. So Peggy goes into the police saying her sister disappeared. She can't find her. She's been gone for two days. And then somehow yes. Patty does show up at the police department with either Nelson Johnson or Ed Gross, one of the two. And right. then they all leave. And then a few days later, Nelson Johnson's dead and your daughters are are gone. Yes. Right. Okay. All right. Now let's get to the other side of this uh, being that we talked about their father uh, a little bit at the beginning of this interview, what did he have to, all to say this? I know he didn't talk much to you. Do you have any idea where did he think his daughters were for this month? He, I mean he had to have noticed that they were gone, right?
1: Well, he thought they had run away to be with uh, these guys from Live Oak which was Marvin Warren and mm-hmm. Ed Gross, mm-hmm. and he he never talked to me. He talked to my daughter, okay, my oldest daughter. He wouldn't talk to me. He'd talk to her, and that they'd be home, not to worry about them. Tell your mother to quit looking for them because they'll show up. That was his words. And he got real angry at me, my daughter told me, for keeping it in the newspapers. He was tired of it being put on in the newspapers that they were missing. And that was it. That was the extent of I've never heard anything else that he has ever said. He just wanted me to quit looking for them, that they would come home.
0: And so the way you found out about the disappearance of your daughters was not through your ex-husband, it was through the police. No. They were the ones that contacted you.
1: I heard it from the uh, Pompano Beach uh, Police Department that they t- to call Lauder Hill. It was Lawder yeah. Hill Police Department that told me, "We need to talk to you about your girls."
0: Right: OK, How long after they disappeared, did they contact you? Was it the next day? Oh, uh, was it was it a week. Uh, was it the week later? Or
1: it was like, uh, uh, oh, it was less than a week from the time okay. he got killed. Okay. Yeah, because I hadn't heard from the girls, so I wanted them to go and get a well wellness check on them. hmm And um, that's how I found out to call Waterhill, and that's how I found out that they were looking for them.
0: Uh, when the police went to the address that you had sent that letter to, was were do you know were Ed Gross and Marvin Warren there?
1: I don't know. They said that uh, that Ed Gross had rented that apartment. Okay. There was nothing. There was absolutely nothing. They said that would make you think that the girls had ever been there.
0: Okay. While while the while your daughters were down in the Pompano Beach area, say they went down there in mid August, did they get jobs? Did uh, obviously they didn't go back to school, which is a whole other discussion. But right. did they did they have jobs? Were they working somewhere? Did they go down there and then they what were they doing while they were down there?
1: Well, now this is what uh, I think Ed Gross told uh, Madge. He first told Madge that they had been working, that um, Peggy worked for a shoe store, and Patty worked at a fast food joint, okay? And now, I went down there and tried to find out from the shoe store if Peggy had ever worked there. She did get a job there but it didn't last She hadn't been there uh, but a couple of weeks. I mean, and Patty, I don't think Patty kept her job. Those girls had never worked. They had never been out in the public much. They just were not capable of going out in the world, holding down a job, and taking care of themselves. That, I can tell you. And I think it was a Butler shoe store, and the man told me that they did have uh, Peggy McDaniel that worked there, but uh, she had only worked there a very short time. I think he said a couple weeks or a week, and she never came back no, because she disappeared that
0: Friday night. So they, so the, her job had no idea what happened to her. She just didn't show up one day. And they were like, oh, I guess yeah. this teenage girl just didn't show up for work.
1: Yeah, and I wanted this social security number. They wouldn't even give me her social security number. That, that's another thing. I, I wanted her social security number. And they said, we can't give that to you. Now, the place Patty supposedly worked, I don't know. We never found that place. You know, it's not like there wasn't any place to eat down there. There's a million places.
0: Yeah.
1: And and Ed Gross, when he was being questioned by the Lauderhill uh, Police Department, he said the girls had left with a white man in a vega. And listen to this. They had left now. On the Friday night, they were supposed to go... To the plank.
0: The same night that. Never so,
1: mentioned that.
0: And the same night that Nelson Johnson was murdered.
1: Yes, but Gross never mentioned that. He said they had left like a week before, and we know that was a lie because mm-hmm. Peggy had been looking for her sister, so they yeah. couldn't have left with this guy in a white Vega.
0: Right. So yeah, Ed Gross says that like a week before that, that's when the the girls had disappeared, but that's not
1: yeah, they that's just not the took case with this guy in a white vega, right.
0: But there is proof because your one daughter ended up going but to they the police. Knew he was lying. Yeah, of course they did. Um so that's what Ed and what about Marvin? has he was he asked about he was down there too. Was he ever asked about any of this? They never
1: talked to Marvin that I know of. Oh, okay. This is another mystery. Marvin Warren's name was never mentioned by the police department to me. I know they questioned other people, but his name never came up.
0: And eventually, um, of course this case is still unsolved and the and, yes. and we should know Nelson Johnson's murder has never been solved, has it? No. They still have not ever taken anybody into custody for the murder of Nelson Johnson. No. Okay. Now, there are a couple other interesting things about this. Once the police started looking into this, where did they find your daughter's bikes?
1: At Marvin Warren's house in Live Oak, Florida.
0: Okay. So, the thinking is that uh, the daughters knew Ed Gross, Marvin Warren, rode their bikes over there. And they all jumped in a car or something and just just headed down, right down the highway for several hours, I might say, the whole way down to the Pompano Beach area. Now, they stopped. You found out that they stopped at a truck stop. Tell the listeners about that. Yes.
1: The detective, Madge, told me that he had (laughs) tracked the girls to a truck stop on the Florida Turnpike and he didn't tell me how he did it he just told me he did it and he said I talked to the woman there that was in charge and she said that Patty and Peggy were by themselves that uh, they showed up by themselves and they were she uh, let them stay there And uh, Detective Madge never said how many days that I can remember if he told me I don't remember it. But uh, Peggy had went in to the restaurant part of the truck stop and told the lady, there's a black man that is stalking us. A big black man is stalking us. And she, you know, kept her eye open, whatever, to see if anything was going on. And she said, uh, then the girls were gone. They just were gone. They never said goodbye. They didn't say where they were going. Uh, nothing. They, they were, they just took their stuff and left.
0: And this is believed to have been the time when they left Live Oak and were headed to Pompano beach, that area that they Mm -hmm. stopped there when, and it, and it could be read into that that maybe at even at that point maybe your 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 daughters were trying to get away maybe they I knew think that's so. okay
1: that's exactly what i believe i believe that they were on their own at that time just like the lady said and i think he somehow i think ed gross got up with them and forced them to go with him mm-hmm. that's how they ended up in pompano beach
0: Now, what did, well, now, what did your daughters, there was something, there was a story also that you told me about them having an uncle in Vero beach. What can you tell the listeners about that?
1: That's what they told this lady at the truck stop. I'd forgotten about that. I have a, I have a brother that lives in Vero beach. He's been there for many moons and, uh, they had told this lady that they were going to their uncle's house in Vero Beach. Now, they never showed up at my brother's house.
0: And he, he and he didn't know never, they were coming.
1: They didn't even have a—him or his wife never even had an inkling that those twins were trying to get to them. That's how I know that Patty and Peggy was there, because nobody knew I had a brother in Vero Beach.
0: Right, that's like a verification that they gave that piece of information to this woman. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. Absolutely.
0: That's a good point.
1: I think they were trying to run away and they got to that truck stop and stayed there, told that lady that somebody was uh, stalking them and they told her they were trying to get to their uncle's house and that You know, I couldn't have made that up. I Hmm. could not have even dreamed they would be going to my brother's house because they had not seen my brother since they were little children. Very, very small. Hmm. I mean, they'd heard me talk about him, but they had not seen him.
0: So So, that's how I know. um, So the police asked Ed... Gross, and uh, not to our knowledge, Marvin Warren, but Ed Gross, because we have all the proof in the world that he was down there. It rented out this apartment. He he never. I mean, he was asked about it, but that's been it in all these years. That's that's been the extent of the investigation into your daughter's yeah. disappearance.
1: He was the main suspect in the Johnson killing. Yeah.
0: Okay. Okay. Now, we need to talk about something else, and this is where, you know, if the listeners are paying attention, it's a very, once again, it's a very convoluted story, a lot of players in it, different locations, but there's been a lot of misinformation out there regarding this, and I want to correct the record on something right now. Regarding what happened afterwards, this this rumor or whatever you want to call it of a few months later, of somebody breaking into your ex-husband's house. What can you tell us about that?
1: Yes. Two months after they were looking for Patty and Peggy in September. In November, Ed Gross and Marvin Warren ended up back in Swanee County, which is Live Oak. And uh, the story was put out to the police maybe maybe imagine them were in lava looking for gross okay they must have talked to my ex-husband because he told them that patty that somebody he didn't say patty and Peggy. he said someone broke into our house and the only thing was missing was winter clothes And, uh, the part they told Madge was that there was a jar that had a bunch of pennies and things in it that had been spilled on the floor. Okay. Now, Patty and Peggy had keys to go to that house. They didn't have to break in, number one. Number two... I don't believe it was Patty and Peggy. I think it was Ed Gross or Marvin Warren, maybe the two of them, broke into his house, took some clothing to make people think they were coming back to New Jersey, that they had left.
0: The, your the daughters night. were moving back, going back to New Jersey.
1: Yes, I think that was a ruse. If someone did break in there, it would have had to have been Ed Gross. And the only thing he would have taken, now, Bob said they took the winter clothes. I had winter clothes for them. See, that's another thing. Why would they break in to take winter clothes when their clothes were in New Jersey? I had their clothes, their boots, everything they would need for the winter.
0: How much do you think that... that that circumstance, that incident, that burglary that happened a couple months afterwards, how much do you think it affected the police investigation into your daughter's disappearance? My perception all these years later is is it would hurt it, because then the police would think, oh, these are a couple girls that just ran away.
1: I do, because I think it gave Ed Madge and them the idea that maybe they were still alive. And I will tell you that they did investigate around Live Oak, Florida, because they had a couple of the deputies from the Live Oak Sheriff's Department there tell the investigators that there was a rumor in town that there was uh, some white girls running with some uh, black man, Okay which they never proved that they they never found any evidence of that i think that was the rumor okay mm-hmm. it was a rumor even the sheriff's deputy said that went nowhere they could find nothing
0: much earlier in this conversation you had talked about uh the phone call this phone bill that the that your two daughters ran up they ended up being like three hundred dollars Somehow, yes. that has gotten construed to be that that phone those phone calls happened after they disappeared.
1: Uh, yes, and could, that's you a con- lie. could you please
0: that's a lie. Do you have any idea where that information even came from?
1: No, I have no idea how that story oh, got out.
0: no, that so made
1: absolutely
0: no sense. so for the record, after september fifteenth, nineteen seventy nine, You've never received one phone call from anybody that you ever thought was one of your daughters, ever?
1: No, nothing.
0: Okay, okay. very good.
1: Absolutely because... nothing. It was as though they just disappeared off the face of the earth.
0: Uh, were you satisfied at the time of what the police tried to do to find your daughters, even though there was some of these things that were kind of like misinformation and everything? Do you think that they did all they could in this in this circumstance?
1: No, I don't. Do you want me to tell you what I really
0: believe? Please, uh, the listeners always want to hear what my, my guests really believe. Always.
1: I really believe in 1979 they had these two girls that they knew nothing about. They didn't know they were young, inexperienced. Uh, they just saw two white girls with the black people black men and they just turned it off as they were prostitutes and they the ed gross was their pimp okay Mm. they made it sound like they had been in cahoots for months and months and months
0: they 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 when you say they you mean the girls and ed gross yeah okay
1: and that's not true because I know for a fact that they never even went down to South Florida until August, near the uh, after the middle of August. I know it was after the middle of August. And I understand that people do put girls into situations, but they should have never taken it with the attitude that I believe that the sheriff's department had, I just feel that they didn't do all they could do. Mm -hmm. They weren't interested in my girls. They wanted to solve a murder case.
0: Right. Something in a, a murder case they still haven't solved 38 years later.
1: Absolutely. It's still unsolved unless they get, Something they will not open it up unless they get some new information, and it's the same way with my girls, unless they get some new information, they're not going to open reopen their case. And I don't think it was actually investigated thoroughly.
0: what did what kind of life lives did Ed Gross and Marvin Warren live after they went back to Live Oak?
1: They went to prison. They weren't up there very long, and the two of them, when I checked back in, because I made a lot of trips to Florida looking for my children, and I went back to the sheriff's department, and they told me that both of those guys were in late Butler awaiting uh, being sent out to general population in the penal system in Florida. That's what I heard.
0: And they were in and out of jail uh, for a long time. And, in fact, we yes. don't we don't believe Ed Gross is still alive, do we?
1: No, we don't.
0: Okay, but Marvin Warren is.
1: Yes, he is. I saw him on Facebook, but I can't say anything other than that. Okay. I don't know the man. I'd never seen him.
0: Right. So Ed Gross, one of the main suspects, and maybe in a uh, a co-conspirator of some type, Marvin Warren. Ed Gross is dead. Marvin Warren, though, is is still alive. Yes. Uh, what do you think happened to your daughters?
1: I think that they were uh, murdered the same night that uh, early Friday night or early Saturday morning, the fifteenth of September, nineteen seventy nine. I truly believe. That Ed Gross and Marvin Warren or Ed Gross and somebody else killed them because they were witnesses to that murder.
0: To the murder of Nelson Johnson.
1: Yes. I truly right. believe. Because those girls, look, let me tell you, they didn't have to go after some guy's $1,100, okay?
0: If the, no. well, hold on. If the listeners don't know what we're talking about, Nelson Johnson. No. We didn't mention this during that part of it. Nelson Johnson had, uh, by all accounts, had a oh, lot of paid. money. Had a lot of money yes. on him uh, at the time that he was murdered, and the money disappeared.
1: Yes, it was in a briefcase. He had a briefcase. He had eleven hundred dollars in it, and now his mother said it should have been in the trunk of his car. Now, whether he took it out before he went to the plank to pick up the girls, you know, to take them out, I don't know. But uh, Ed Gross, uh, I mean, uh, Sergeant Madge said that there was no briefcase and no money in the trunk of that car, and it had been wiped clean. Okay. Now, there had to be another person involved for the simple reason who drove them away from that Firestone store in Lauderhill after the murder. Somebody had to drive Patty and Peggy away from that car if, the, if they were even in it, okay? They had to have driven them. The murderer had to have been driven from that site in an automobile. And I believe, with all my heart, they couldn't, they must have, you know, and here's another thing, theory, that I'm thinking. I think they did go to the plank. And I think that they murdered Johnson, for what reason, I don't know, but put him in his car, then they drove the car into Water Hill to leave it. And they would have killed the girls, and they had to dispose of them, but they didn't have a vehicle, so they just threw them out somewhere. And maybe they... they Buried them somewhere. I don't know. All I know is they didn't show up in live with them guys, and they've never been heard from since the night they went to the plane on the 15th day of September
0: 1979. Mm-hmm. What did this do to you and your family, Joyce? when like this what, do yeah what how, i mean how how was your family affected by this
1: oh my god i i thought my life had ended the only thing that kept me going was the fact that i had a little baby in the household i got married in 1980 to the man that i'm living with today. We're still married. He helped me so much. If it had not been for him and his money and my money and the many trips we made to Florida looking for these girls and the people at my workplace, I work for a big hospital up in Jersey. I would have lost my mind. I'm going to tell you, I I used to go and look for them. I even went to Disney uh, World over in Orlando. And I'm looking. I'm saying, well, they were born in Orlando. All my children were born in Orlando. Maybe they went to Orlando. And I'm at Disney World, and I'm watching the parade, and I could see my girls' faces in these people. And I know it sounds crazy, but I'm running after these people calling my girls' names because I'm thinking, oh, my God, that looks just like Patty and Piggy. And it was no good. I could see their face and people, and I would just run up to people, and it wouldn't be them. That's mm-hmm. how crazy I was at the time. It it destroyed my son. My son was only like eight years old when his sisters disappeared. And that boy went into a shell, and he couldn't, you couldn't speak their name around him. He just, he would just clam up and just, I mean... It affected him for years. We could not talk about Fatty and Peggy around him because those kids just carried him around and doted on him and and uh my other younger daughter, uh, she was young at the time. She was like twelve years old and they suffered when they heard me crying and carrying on. They had to cry, and because they were suffering with me, I thought I was going to lose my mind. Hmm.
0: But you didn't, and here you are, but thirty-eight. Here you are, thirty-eight years later, uh, still looking yeah. for, still looking for answers.
1: Still looking. Where, where have you but found?
0: Where have you found their strength, Joyce?
1: Through God, I just kept praying. Five years, I prayed so earnestly and begged God to let me know where my girls were. And, Ed, I don't know if you want to hear this story, but I had a dream about them.
0: Please, please share it with the listeners. Please do.
1: I had a dream, and there's the girls at 17 years old. And I walked into this room, and they had cut their hair in the my dream. And I said, hey, I said, you girls have cut your hair. And they looked at me, and they said, yes, Mama. Uh, and I was talking to them. And i and after I was talking to them, I said, uh, "You girls coming home with mama?" And they said, "We can't. We're under the palmettos asleep. I wrote that down, I wrote that dream down, and I still have it to this day, and I haven't read it for a long time, but I used to read it quite often and It told me those girls were under the palmettos asleep. Now that told me they were dead. Yeah. Because I don't know if they were just thrown out up under the palmettos or whether they are actually buried in a grave somewhere under them. But it would have had to have been—they would have had to have been disposed of somewhere in South Florida. Are on the road back to Live Oak. I mean, I just, since the guys didn't come back until November, I believe they were killed and disposed of right down there near Fort Lauderdale.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, Joyce. Joyce, uh, you're on Facebook, aren't you? I want I want the listeners to be able to find you, uh, to to friend you on Facebook. You know, our, our my listeners are very um, active in communicating with guests that I've had on Unfound, and I'd like to do that with you. You're on you're on Facebook, correct? Yeah. Or, okay. Yes, I am. Okay. You know, I live here in Florida. I'd never even heard of the disappearance, and I'm very versed in disappearance cases. I'd never even heard of the disappearance of your daughters. Until Mary Lyle called me our mutual friend. Of course, she appeared on an earlier episode of Unfound to talk about the disappearance of her daughter. Um, so I want to work with you, you know, to get the word out there. And maybe, you know, maybe we can dig some things up after all these years.
1: Okay. Oh, I would like that.
0: Yes. You know, and we of I- course, we had talked about the misinformation that is out there um, yes. on, on Reddit and some other places, some stories about what happened that absolutely are not true. Right. So we're going to try to correct that. We're going to try to do that.
1: Thank God.
0: Okay. Is there anything else you'd like to tell the listeners before we conclude this interview?
1: Well, I noticed, uh, I know that a lot of the people that has read the different accounts in the papers or whatever, they think that we didn't, that I didn't care about those daughters Oh, my God, they could never even imagine the trips uh, flying and driving and looking over the years, and I've never give up. I've always called or went someplace to try and find new evidence. And I'm getting nowhere with the Broward County Sheriff's Department for the simple reason there's no new info to make them open the case so this whole case got misconstrued from the beginning it was never handled right like i said they were looking for to solve a homicide i was looking for two angels and they just they just made it it was bad they it just never was the The right way. It was not handled right.
0: Well, Joyce, we're going to try to correct that now all these years later in 2017. I'm going to do all I can for you. My listeners, I know, are going to feel for you. Hopefully, they can help you as well.
1: Oh, I pray that somebody will hear and talk about it.
0: Joyce, uh, I deeply appreciate you joining me and the listeners on this episode of Unfound.
1: Thank you, Ed. I appreciate your time. And your devotion.
0: You're welcome, Joyce. And that was my conversation with Joyce Rivetuzo. I have to admit, from the first moment I talked to her, I liked her. I will admit, in some of the other cases uh, with people who I've interviewed, I think it took a little time before this that person and myself kind of warmed up to each other. They didn't know me. I don't know them. And eventually, of course, in the end, I think that I grow to be very close with all of my guests on the show, and I talk to many of them quite often. But in Joyce's case, there was just something about it. Within the first 30 seconds, we just kind of clicked, and I think uh, that was reflective in the interview. At least I hope it was. I think it was. I hope you felt the same way. I'm going to continue to work with her. Actually, off-air... She and I brainstormed some things that she could be doing even all these years later, but we kept them out of the interview for privacy reasons. And I need to thank Mary Lyle, who was the one that made that interview happen. Mary Lyle, just out of the blue one day, called me, and I actually had to call her back. Uh, she told me about Joyce Rivetuzo in this case, and she thought that I might be able to help Joyce out, and I was more than happy to do so. Also, We've covered so many disappearances on Unfound, and they're all horrible, tragic, and sad. And I wish none of them would have happened. And I hope they all get solved before the guests that I've had on this show leave this earth. But I don't think I truly contemplated the loss of two children, two parents, a mother, a father, until this case. I guess maybe I was a little too short-sighted. I'm not sure. Maybe it's because you think, well, one child being lost is horrible. It can't get any worse than that. And then you run into a case like this. Uh, I don't know how you quantify what Joyce has been through. I don't emotionally. I don't know how you do that. One thing uh, we didn't mention in the interview that maybe some of you are wondering about was what happened to the letter that Peggy and Patty sent. It would be interesting to see that letter. Unfortunately, I had learned from Joyce that somewhere between 1979 and now, it was lost. And I think what happened was that Joyce, of course, understanding what was in the letter and how Peggy and Patty were sounding, she took the letter very seriously. But of course, in her thinking, well, I'll send them a letter. They'll get it. They'll go to the airport. I'll send them money They'll fly back to New Jersey, and in a couple weeks this will all be forgotten, and this letter won't mean that much. I think that's what happened. I, I think that uh, they didn't know, she didn't know, maybe the rest of Joyce's family didn't, who were living with her in New Jersey fully didn't understand how much of an impact that letter would have somewhere down the road. In fact, you could almost call it a, a piece of evidence in a way. And it would certainly be interesting to read that letter all these years later. I think just at the time, didn't fully appreciate where all of this was going to go. Why? Well, I don't think any mother can imagine losing a daughter or two daughters or a son, two sons, in the way that this happened. Nobody really thinks about that. But it would be interesting to see that letter all all these years later. Being that the theme for this episode is connecting the dots. I'm going to do a little bit of that right now. The main question is this, and this is something that I continued to think about while I was doing the interview. Why is this case somewhat unknown and unsolved? It's the disappearances of two sisters and a murder connected to it, and this is a case that, at the time this episode came out, It wasn't on major missing person sites out there. How is that possible? How do we connect the dots to try to figure out why that is the case? I think the main factor was the break-in months later. I think it totally set the police off in the wrong direction. And in fact, I even found an article that says so. And in fact, I posted it uh, to the Unfound Podcast discussion group a couple days ago. This caused the police to think that the girls were still alive and somehow they had made their way from Pompano Beach back up to Live Oak, broke into that house, and stole some winter clothing so they could run off to wherever, maybe even going the whole way back to New Jersey. The problem is just that little piece of information, however that break-in happened, whether it was Ed Gross and Marvin Warren once they got back there who did that, or... I'm even open to the idea that maybe the father of Peggy and Patty might have done that himself, maybe feeling a little guilty or something like that. I have no idea. The guy sounds like a weird guy to me. I don't know. But just something simple as that, a break-in at the father's house a couple months later was enough to set the police off in a totally different direction. They had connected the dots so well down in Pompano Beach. Finding a relationship between this murder of Nelson Johnson and the disappearances of Peggy and Patty. Such a great job on their part. Really good job. But I think that they connected too many dots, thus distorting the picture of what happened. And those extra dots being that break-in in Live Oak that they automatically thought was done by Peggy and Patty. I think it's pretty obvious 38 years later that that was not the case, that that was done by somebody else. But at the time, and the police eventually should have figured that out, but just a little piece like that, the police getting off the track, getting into the news has caused, I think, people to continue to think that Peggy and Patty McDaniel are still alive out there, and that's the reason that this case isn't better known. Just something as simple as that. We're always searching for those reasons. Why is this case well known? This one isn't. And I think that we can put the blame for the reason this case is unknown and still unsolved to the police getting off the track when they accepted that that break-in was done by Peggy and Patty. My opinion looking at it all these years later. They took the break-in too seriously, and you get a feeling it seems they wanted a reason to stop looking And the break-in gave them a reason. And really, that break-in only served to bolster Ed Gross's claim that the girls ran off with a white guy in a white car. And the claim that Ed and Marvin were the girls' boyfriends, which isn't supported by the evidence at all, is then thought to be true because of this break-in. And that's something that continues to be uh, seen on Reddit. In a way, there were like too many dots. Police didn't know when to stop and say, hey, we already have a clear picture. And even after Ed and Marvin went to jail, it doesn't seem the police ever changed their minds. So what did happen? I really believe that these girls were sex trafficked. I think that this plays out like a 1979 version of what happened to Jesse Foster, a case that we covered on Unfound. Where in Jesse Foster's case, an older man... Took her to Las Vegas under one pretense, and then before long, she was a prostitute on the streets of Las Vegas. Then it ended up disappearing. How is that any different than what happened to Peggy and Patty McDaniel? It's the same. Two young women with an older man taken to a a new city where they're not familiar with anything. And I think that's what was going on there in August of 1979. I think that's the reason the girls sent the letter to their mother, but being 17-year-old girls, they didn't want to tell their mother everything. They figured, well, once we get back to New Jersey, we'll sit her down and we'll tell her what we got mixed up in, and then she'll understand because if she reads it in a letter, who knows what can happen. I think that they got those jobs because Ed Gross told them to. They were like covers to keep, keep up appearances. But really, Ed Gross was trying to make... I think Peggy and Patty, part of his harem down in the Pompano Beach area. That's the exact reason that he got that apartment, even though he was living up in Live Oak. I think they sent that letter because the girls knew they were in over their heads. And it's probably a perfect example that had this been 2017, of course these girls would have cell phones, that have Facebook pages and everything else, and probably if this happens in 2017, frankly, probably Peggy and Patty McDaniel are still alive. But the limitations of communication back then uh, probably was one of the contributing factors in their disappearance. I believe that Ed Gross got the letters that Joyce sent. I don't, I don't think Peggy or Patty ever saw either of those letters that their mother sent. He got them, and that's probably when he figured out, I need to make these two girls a go away. Uh, they're going to be too much trouble for me. And on top of that, he probably had Nelson Johnson's murder planned days, if not weeks in advance. And he probably figured out, I think I'll just take care of this all in one night. I'll convince Nelson that he can go out with these girls, being that, you know, they work for me and they're my prostitutes and they're, you know, they're turning tricks for me now down in Pompano Beach. I'll set him up with them, and once he shows up. I'll kill him, take the money that's on him, and then I can get rid of Peggy and Patty at the same time. I think that makes a lot of sense. The good news for Joyce Rivetuzo and her family is that Marvin Warren is still alive. He's in his 50s. He was only 19 when this all happened. So there's still a chance to solve this. We have a major person in this disappearance and in the murder, at least that's the way I think, who is still alive, who can still answer questions. And I'm hoping uh, that the police will track him down and see if he wants to talk about what happened on September fifteenth, nineteen 1979. And if that happens, I'll, of course, let all of you know. And that's the program for today. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes, subscribe, and give Unfound a great five-star review. I would deeply appreciate it. I thank you for listening. I'm Ed Denzel and you've been listening to Unfound.